Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. .com at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Protecting family unity became the African-American community's first line of defense. A strong, united family provided the love, hope, and courage necessary for survival in a hostile land. In fighting for family, each individual knew he or she was not alone and affirmed a vital sense of identity and self-worth. The family unit's strength became the psychological base from which other resistance was launched. Women and men labored together in the fields and shared the burdens and joys of home and family. Because of this, the division of labor between men and women that was so pronounced among Europeans never hardened in slave communities. Powerful bonds of family love and kinship originated in West Africa and slaveholders early sought to destroy African-American ties to the ancestral homeland. First band was the use of drums, the center of African communications, and use of African languages. Whites also stopped non-Christian religious practices and cultural festivals. The oppressor promoted his religion and culture to help install slave obedience and conformity. But in the privacy of huts, African traditions and words survived in secret. African respect for the elderly and care for children continued in New World communities. In the homeland, babies were named for dead or elderly kinfolk. Grandparents or elderly uncles and aunts were consulted on names. These concepts crossed the Atlantic to survive in the New World. An African model of child discipline stricter than U.S. standards, prevailed among slaves. This was judged necessary to train new generations in the traditions, skills, and morals vital for survival and for self-respect. White owners sought to control the naming process 
and selected babies' names from Greek or Roman history or folklore. Cato, Caesar, or Cupid. To assert their power, masters denied slaves any last names but the master's own. It was a crime for a slave to be caught using his own name, wrote Jacob Stroyer. William Wells Brown received very severe whippings for telling people that my name was William, after orders were given to change it. But in the slave quarter, said slave Robert Smalls, a ship's pilot who achieved fame in the Civil War, people used their original first and last names. Laws forbade a husband to raise a hand in defense of himself, his wife, or children. Henry Bibb wrote, It is useless for a poor slave to resist the white man in a slave-holding state, for the law declares that he shall submit or die. To protect each other, without risking danger, black women and men had to tread a careful line. Some defied the risks to fight back. In 1829, a slave named Lydia was shot while defending herself from her master. Judge Ruffin of North Carolina used this case to threaten every slave. The power of the master must be absolute to render the submission of the slave perfect. The slave, to remain a slave, must be made sensible that there is no appeal from his master. Moses Grandy escaped to England and dictated his autobiography. He recalled this scene. I remember well my mother often hid us all in the woods to prevent master selling us. When we wanted water, she sought for it in any hole or puddle full of tadpoles and insects. She strained it and gave it round to each of us in the hollow of her hand. For food, she gathered berries in the woods, got potatoes, raw corn, etc. After a time, the master would send word to her to come in, promising he would not sell us. Work-weary parents walked long distances to visit families. William Hurd's father, who lived three miles away, would come in on Wednesday nights and be back at his home by daylight Thursday mornings, come again Saturday night, and return by daylight Monday morning. Hurd became a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Frederick Douglass told of his mother, who lived 12 miles away, and her few hasty visits made in the night on foot after the daily tasks were over, and when she had to return in time for the driver's call to the field in the early morning. My pa, recalled a South Carolina slave, slipped in and out enough times to have four children. One of my earliest recollections is that of my mother cooking a chicken late at night and awakening her children for the purpose of feeding them, said Booker T. Washington. He grew up to become a well-known political figure and educator. Devotion to family is reflected in slave marriages that outlasted the many disruptions of planter control. Dr. Herbert Gutman's The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom states, Evidence of long marriages is found in all slave settings in the decades preceding the Civil War. His research uncovered that 20,000 North Carolina slaves in 17 counties and from all classes at the end of the Civil War 
paid a fee of 25 cents to register their marriages. In six Virginia counties, 2,817 slave marriages mm -hmm. were officially renewed. No slave family was protected in the law, he wrote. But upon their emancipation, most Virginia ex-slave mm -hmm. families had two parents, and most older couples had lived together in long-lasting unions. Among the eager marriage-minded couples mm -hmm. were Jacob Wiley, 93, and Phoebe Tanner, 80, of Davis Bend, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Union officers in the field found the same story of lasting marriage commitments. Commander Thomas Callahan wrote that blacks had an almost mm -hmm. universal anxiety to abide by first connections. Many, both men and women with whom I am acquainted, whose wives or husbands the rebels mm -hmm. have driven off, first refuse to form new connections and declare their purpose to keep faith to absent ones. Mm -hmm. At many points, women defied the white supremacy system to defend their families. To face down a Georgia slave trader, Harriet Ross mm -hmm. hid her boy in a cabin and guarded the door. You are after my son, but the first man that comes into my house, I will mm -hmm. split his head open. When her master's son tried to beat her, she took a pole and beat him nearly to death with it. Her daughter Harriet saw and learned, and later applied the lessons as Harriet Tubman. Mrs. Ross finally left bondage by mounting a cow and riding away from the plantation in broad daylight. Other mothers also insisted on teaching daughters to fight. Fanny Jennings of Eden, Tennessee, was vividly remembered by her daughter for her courage. My first fought and kicked all the time. I tell you, she was a demon. She said she wouldn't be whipped. The one doctrine of my mother's teaching, which was branded upon my senses, was that I should never let anyone abuse me. I'll kill you, gal, if you don't stand up for yourself, she would say. Fight. And if you can't fight, kick. If you can't kick, then bite. Ma was generally willing to work, but if she didn't feel like doing something, none could make her do it. When some slave owners agreed to let their slaves work for pay and then use the money to purchase loved ones, many women jumped at the chance. They worked for decades, first to buy their own liberty, and then to ransom children and spouses. President Jefferson's servant, Alethea Tanner, purchased her freedom in 1810, and by 1828 saved enough to buy her sister, ten children, and five grandchildren. In 1836, she bought four more grandchildren. In that year, 476 of Cincinnati's 1,129 free blacks had purchased their own freedom. Hester Lane, an elderly New Yorker, purchased and then liberated 11 slaves. She began with $100 to buy a young girl she knew from birth, educated her, helped in her marriage, and at the births of her four children. Then she bought a boy of 14 for $200, a man of 30 for $750, a sickly family of three for $140, a 
a woman and her children, for $550, and their father for $200. She saw that each child was educated and given a start in business. Children commonly addressed adults as uncle or aunt. More than a mark of respect, wrote Frederick Douglass, this was a recognition that the young had to be provided for. In Georgia, Alec was one slave who asked, should each man regard only his own children and forget all the others? If parents and relatives were traded away or children sold without their parents, men and women without blood ties stepped in to share parenting responsibilities. The practice of taking in children changed the meaning of the word parents in the slave community to mean all adults. Parents means relations in general, family, explained Robert Smalls. A black community expression was, if you hurt one of the family, you hurt them all. The African-American tradition of adopting orphans was first noticed by whites after the Civil War. Thomas Conway, director of the Bureau of Free Labor in the Gulf States, thought that five or ten thousand orphans of the freedmen would be thrown upon our hands at the close of the war. But strange to say, our numbers have hardly increased. He found African-American families gathering orphaned children of their former friends and neighbors, thus saving us the necessity of bearing large expenses in caring for them. Even as men and women protected children, owners inflicted a cruel fate on many slave women. To increase the stock of babies for sale, they were bribed and pressured to produce more of them. Tempe Herndon remembered she was prized because I had so many children. She recalled one master who took young slave women and men and put them in a big barn every Sunday and left them there until Monday morning. She believed 60 babies were born in that way. Georgia planter John C. Reed said that some masters thought all day long about the natural increase of slaves. He believed this practice had become the South's leading industry. The American cotton planter advised readers to carefully cultivate this source of great profit to the owner. Rice planter P.C. Weston announced, Women with six children at any one time are allowed all Saturday to themselves. Harriet Jacobs recalled what many girls and young women faced. When she is 14 or 15, her owner or his sons or the overseer, or perhaps all of them being able to bribe her with presents, if these fail to accomplish their purpose, she is whipped or starved into submission to their will. William Kraft wrote, any man with money can buy a beautiful and virtuous girl. He called it a common practice for men of the highest circles of society to be the fathers of children by their slaves, and said, the more pious, beautiful, and virtuous the girls are, the greater the price they bring. When prime field hands cost $1,500, some young women sold for 5000 particularly mixed bloods in New Orleans. Whites also invaded black marriages 
and battles followed. Josiah Henson remembered his father with his head bloody and his back lacerated, his right ear cut off, because he had beaten the overseer who assaulted his wife. In 1830, in Virginia, a man killed his wife's master because he had kept her locked in a storehouse when she refused him. A Tennessee planter pushed his way into one black marriage bed after another until an irate husband choked the life out of him. In 1859, in Mississippi, Alfred was executed after he killed the overseer who attacked Charlotte, his wife. Women were also ready to risk death for their marriages. Jarmaine Logan recalled his mother armed with all the tiger's blood in her veins and a heavy stick, striking a knife from a planter's hand and then knocking him out. A slave named Clarinda swung a hoe that discouraged her master's interest in her, and Cherry Logue swung a club at a man who made insulting advances. In Virginia, Suki punched her owner, who was trying to rip off her dress and throw her to the floor. Suki managed to push him, seat first, into a pot of boiling soup. He screamed as he ran, but quietly enough, so his wife couldn't hear. Some black women, lured or forced into intimate relationships with whites, used their influence to gain equality and respect. Wives of planters brought suits claiming slave women received the attention, affection, and love they were denied by their husbands. In 1831, in Kentucky, an owner's will was contested by relatives who charged he had been insane. Their proof was he showed an inclination to marry the slave Grace, whom he liberated. Some of the resulting interracial marriages brought freedom and equality. Captain Ralph Quarles of Virginia married slave Lucy Langston, then freed her and their three sons. The young men left Virginia for Ohio, one saying, He did for his sons all he could in wisdom, in education, and in his will. Poet Langston Hughes was born from this family. Lewis Clark's sister refused to become the mistress of a man named Coval unless he freed her, and in about a month he took her to Mexico, emancipated, and married her. She and Mr. Coval visited France for a year or more, and then the West Indies, and she inherited his fortune. But most women forced into interracial relationships were unable to do more than hold their pride. One man said his grandmother was raped, but she carried herself like a queen and was tall and stately. Louisa Piquet, trapped in a relationship, had trouble with my soul the whole time, but could only pray for her master's death. When her prayers were answered, she didn't cry nor nothing, for I was glad he was dead. I was left free and so glad. Women field workers found some comfort by singing a song of lament and warning. Rains come wet me, sun come dry me. Stay back, boss man, don't come nigh me. The exploitation of women and their separation from their men 
left a bitterness that many could never forget. In 1863, a black couple who had been forced apart, and each of whom had remarried, met in Virginia. The woman felt it was like a stroke of death to me. We threw ourselves into each other's arms and cried. White folks got a heap to answer for the way they've done to colored folks. As white fathers and sons sought out black women, their wives hid from the truth. Mistress Mary Chestnut wrote in her diary how our men live in one house with their wives and their concubines, and the mulattoes one sees in every family partly resemble the white children. Any lady is ready to tell you who is the father of all the mulatto children in everybody's household but her own. Those she seems to think, drop from the clouds. Despite repeated assaults, black families tried to reunite. A runaway who fled to Canada in 1853 told his tale of family unity. My wife got a voucher for her freedom before she would come on. I was in slavery until I was about 18 years old. There were my four uncles, myself and mother, and another sister of my uncle's. My uncles paid $1,500 apiece for themselves. They bought themselves three times. They got cheated out of their freedom in the first instance and were put in jail at one time and were going to be sold down south right away. But parties who were well acquainted with us and knew we had made desperate struggles for freedom came forward and advanced the money and took us out of jail and put us on a footing so that we could go ahead and earn money to pay the debt. My uncles bought me, my mother, as well as themselves. How married love survives separations has been unearthed in recently discovered slave letters. In December 1862, Norfleet, a Texas servant taken with his master into the Confederate Army, heard from his wife, Fanny. I haven't forgotten you, nor will I ever forget you as long as the world stands even if you forget me. My love is as great as it was the first night I married you, and hope it will be so with you. My heart and love is pinned on your breast, and I hope yours is to mine. There is no time, night or day, but what I am studying about you. Your loving wife, Fanny. In the slaves' struggle for knowledge, women less carefully watched than men often played a leading role. Whites used to spell out words so blacks couldn't understand what was going on, recalled one woman. But I ran to uncle and spelled them over to him, and he told me what they meant. Southern laws imposed harsh penalties for anyone teaching slaves to read or write. Margaret Douglas, a white woman of Norfolk, Virginia, was tried and found guilty, according to the court, of one of the vilest crimes that ever disgraced society. She had taught Kate, a slave girl, to read the Bible. No enlightened society can exist where such offenses go unpunished, ruled the court. During an era when education was a privilege for white men, not women, the African-American community could afford no such distinctions. Some black women daringly conducted secret schools. In Natchez, Louisiana, 
Milla Granson, who learned mm -hmm. to read from the children of her Kentucky master, ran a midnight school of 12 pupils each term that taught reading and writing between 11 p.m. and mm -hmm. 2 a.m. She graduated hundreds. Some pupils soon applied their knowledge by writing passes for runaways fleeing to Canada. Susie King and her younger brother attended an illegal school in Savannah taught by a free black woman, Mrs. Woodhouse. King described the process. We went every day about nine o'clock with our books wrapped in paper to prevent the police or white persons from seeing them. We went in, one at a time, through the gate, into the yard to the kitchen, which was the schoolroom. She had 25 or 30 children, whom she taught, assisted by her daughter, Mary Jane. The neighbors would see us going in sometimes, but they supposed we were there learning trades, as it was the custom to give children a trade of some kind. After school, we left the same way we entered, one by one, when we would go to a square about a block from the school and wait for each other. Frederick Douglass first learned to read from his mistress until her husband found out and exploded, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would become unmanageable and of no value to his master. Douglas had learned more than reading and writing. He understood, as had many black men and women, that on this control of knowledge rested the white man's power to enslave the black man. Hello? Love Talk Radio. Mr. Cat? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. That was my, my fault. My phone was on mute. I apologize. Could you tell us sorry, more my about... my fault. I called late. Okay, well, no one had to know that you said something. But... Okay. <laughs> Um, we will edit this show, so don't worry about it. If you could be kind and just introduce the book and Chapter 3. I know you had a chance to listen to it, so if you can... You, you want uh, me to do what? Introduce the book, Breaking the Chains, and Chapter 3, because I'm going to edit... That was Chapter 3. Right. Well, when I edit the show, I'm going to move this comment, your your comment. Oh, I see, I see. The beginning of the interview. So if you can do do that without me having to say anything so I can delete myself out of the conversation. Okay. 
Are you going to do this now or what? Yes, I'm going to do it now. So if you can just introduce the book and Chapter 3, that would be great. Okay. Okay, I will. Okay. Let me know when to start. No. Start now. Oh. Right now. Okay, this is William Lauren Katz, and I would like to introduce my book, Breaking the Chains. It's a story of slavery and slave resistance in the United States. And uh, one of the things, which I'll come back to in a moment, is that it's highly illustrated with many uh, photographs and line drawings and engravings of the time that I collected so that they could be used to not only tell the story, but to show the story. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The book has a number of chapters, 13 in all. It starts from Africa and the first rebellions that took place against the slave catchers in Africa, takes one on the high seas, a trip across the Atlantic in which there were a hundred or more slave rebellions in some instance, uh, instances, the Africans taking control of the ships and even getting back to Africa. And then it goes on to what happened here in the Americas, where <clears throat> uh, slaves were considered from the beginning a troublesome property, which meant Nobody adopts to slavery. Nobody likes it. And everybody who has a chance revolts. And every people who has ever been enslaved, whether it was the ancient Hebrews or people of modern times, find a way to resist, escape. And it talks then on the chapter that you're going to be hearing on the battle for family and knowledge. And our families kept their structure together as best they could. They fought to educate themselves and to use this knowledge to develop resistance. And then the book goes on into the way plantation life was disrupted, how there was resistance in both in the industrial part of the South and the urban part of the South, different kind of resistance than on the plantations. And then there's a chapter on, it's called Music for Jesus, Lyrics for Freedom on how enslaved people, everybody thought they were entirely ignorant, turned their religion and particularly the music that accompanied their religious services into laments for freedom, desires for freedom, and even plans for freedom. And the book goes on to discuss runaways and maroons, these colonies that formed when Native Americans and African Americans joined together to make a life for themselves that was to be their American dream, and to fight off those who would stop them. It goes on to talk about the revolts in the age of the American Revolution, and then some important 19th century slave rebels, and the fiery abolitionists in which white people and black people in the North largely joined together to fight the system. And the last three chapters are on the Civil War and how the Civil War was a massive uprising of African Americans for freedom, and hundreds of thousands 
joined the Union Army and Navy and actually brought Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation to reality. Slaves escaped, uh, black men in uniform liberated Charleston and other cities, and so on. And that's how the book goes on. Now, on Chapter 3, I would just like to add something the listener won't get at when uh, you hear the the reading, and that's the, the pictures. One of the pictures in shows uh, early on is a photograph in uh, 1909 showing a black marriage ceremony which marked the end of slavery because some couples had been married for years, for decades, but they rushed off once they were free since they could not be legally married when they were enslaved and had their marriage solemnized and written into law. And another is a a rare um, picture I found in a Harper's Weekly of an African-American community in Tennessee in which you can see of the women uh, set up an orphan asylum to care for children. Slavery also provided, as picture shows, scant protection for women and children as a man looks in as a woman tries to protect her children. Anyway, these are just some of the pictures in Chapter 3, and I hope you enjoy the reading. The book is Breaking the Chains, African-American Slave Resistance. And this is William Lauren Katz. Thank you. Protecting family unity became the African-American community's first line of defense. A strong, united family provided the love, hope, and courage necessary for survival in a hostile land. In fighting for family, each individual knew he or she was not alone and affirmed a vital sense of identity and self-worth. The family unit's strength became the psychological base from which other resistance was launched. Women and men labored together in the fields and shared the burdens and joys of home and family. Because of this, the division of labor between men and women that was so pronounced among Europeans never hardened in slave communities. Powerful bonds of family love and kinship originated in West Africa, and slaveholders early sought to destroy African-American ties to the ancestral homeland. First banned was the use of drums, the center of African communications, and use of African languages. Whites also stopped non-Christian religious practices and cultural festivals. The oppressor promoted his religion and culture to help install slave obedience and conformity. But in the privacy of huts, African traditions and words survived in secret. African respect for the elderly and care for children continued in New World communities. In the homeland, babies were named for dead or elderly kinfolk. Grandparents or elderly uncles and aunts were consulted on names. These concepts crossed the Atlantic to survive in the New World. An African model of child discipline, stricter than U.S. standards, prevailed among slaves. This was judged necessary to train new generations in the traditions, skills, and morals vital for survival and for self-respect. White owners sought to control the naming process and selected babies' names from Greek or Roman history or folklore. 
Cato, Caesar, or Cupid. To assert their power, masters denied slaves any last names but the master's own. It was a crime for a slave to be caught using his own name, wrote Jacob Stroyer. William Wells Brown received very severe whippings for telling people that my name was William, after orders were given to change it. But in the slave quarter, said slave Robert Smalls, a ship's pilot who achieved fame in the Civil War, people used their original first and last names. Laws forbade a husband to raise a hand in defense of himself, his wife, or children. Henry Bibb wrote, It is useless for a poor slave to resist the white man in a slave-holding state, for the law declares that he shall submit or die. To protect each other, without risking danger, black women and men had to tread a careful line. Some defied the risks to fight back. In 1829, a slave named Lydia was shot while defending herself from her master. Judge Ruffin of North Carolina used this case to threaten every slave. The power of the master must be absolute to render the submission of the slave perfect. The slave, to remain a slave, must be made sensible that there is no appeal from his master. Moses Grandy escaped to England and dictated his autobiography. He recalled this scene. I remember well my mother often hid us all in the woods to prevent master selling us. When we wanted water, she sought for it in any hole or puddle full of tadpoles and insects. She strained it and gave it round to each of us in the hollow of her hand. For food, she gathered bears in the woods, got potatoes, raw corn, etc. After a time, the master would send word to her to come in, promising he would not sell us. Work-weary parents walked long distances to visit families. William Hurd's father, who lived three miles away, would come in on Wednesday nights and be back at his home by daylight Thursday mornings, come again Saturday night, and return by daylight Monday morning. Hurd became a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Frederick Douglass told of his mother, who lived 12 miles away, and her few hasty visits made in the night on foot after the daily tasks were over, and when she had to return in time for the driver's call to the field in the early morning. My pa, recalled a South Carolina slave, slipped in and out enough times to have four children. One of my earliest recollections is that of my mother cooking a chicken late at night and awakening her children for the purpose of feeding them, said Booker T. Washington. He grew up to become a well-known political figure and educator. Devotion to family is reflected in slave marriages that outlasted the many disruptions of planter control. Dr. Herbert Gutman's The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom states, Evidence of long marriages is found in all slave settings in the decades preceding the Civil War. His research uncovered that 20,000 North Carolina slaves in 17 counties and from all classes at the end of the Civil War paid a fee of 25 cents to register their marriages. 
In six Virginia counties, 2,817 slave marriages were officially renewed. No slave family was protected in the law, he wrote. But upon their emancipation, most Virginia ex-slave families had two parents, and most older couples had lived together in long-lasting unions. Among the eager marriage-minded couples were Jacob Wiley, 93, and Phoebe Tanner, 80, of Davis Bend, Mississippi. Union officers in the field found the same story of lasting marriage commitments. Commander Thomas Callahan wrote that blacks had an almost universal anxiety to abide by first connections. Many, both men and women with whom I am acquainted, whose wives or husbands the rebels have driven off, first refuse to form new connections and declare their purpose to keep faith to absent ones. At many points, women defied the white supremacy system to defend their families. To face down a Georgia slave trader, Harriet Ross hid her boy in a cabin and guarded the door. You are after my son, but the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open. When her master's son tried to beat her, she took a pole and beat him nearly to death with it. Her daughter Harriet saw and learned, and later applied the lessons as Harriet Tubman. Mrs. Ross finally left bondage by mounting a cow and riding away from the plantation in broad daylight. Other mothers also insisted on teaching daughters to fight. Fanny Jennings of Eden, Tennessee, was vividly remembered by her daughter for her courage. Ma fussed, fought, and kicked all the time. I tell you, she was a demon. She said she wouldn't be whipped. The one doctrine of my mother's teaching, which was branded upon my senses, was that I should never let anyone abuse me. I'll kill you, gal, if you don't stand up for yourself, she would say. Fight. And if you can't fight, kick. If you can't kick, then bite. Ma was generally willing to work, but if she didn't feel like doing something, none could make her do it. When some slave owners agreed to let their slaves work for pay and then use the money to purchase loved ones, many women jumped at the chance. They worked for decades, first to buy their own liberty and then to ransom children and spouses. President Jefferson's servant, Alethea Tanner, purchased her freedom in 1810 and by 1828 saved enough to buy her sister, ten children, and five grandchildren. In 1836, she bought four more grandchildren. In that year, 476 of Cincinnati's 1,129 free blacks had purchased their own freedom. Hester Lane, an elderly New Yorker, purchased and then liberated 11 slaves. She began with $100 to buy a young girl she knew from birth, educated her, helped in her marriage, and at the births of her four children. Then she bought a boy of 14 for $200, a man of 30 for $750, a sickly family of three for $140, a woman and her children for $550, and their father 
for $200. She saw that each child was educated and given a start in business. Children commonly addressed adults as uncle or aunt. More than a mark of respect, wrote Frederick Douglass, this was a recognition that the young had to be provided for. In Georgia, Alec was one slave who asked, should each man regard only his own children and forget all the others? If parents and relatives were traded away or children sold without their parents, men and women without blood ties stepped in to share parenting responsibilities. The practice of taking in children changed the meaning of the word parents in the slave community to mean all adults. Parents means relations in general, family, explained Robert Smalls. A black community expression was, if you hurt one of the family, you hurt them all. The African-American tradition of adopting orphans was first noticed by whites after the Civil War. Thomas Conway, director of the Bureau of Free Labor in the Gulf States, thought that five or ten thousand orphans of the freedmen would be thrown upon our hands at the close of the war. But strange to say, our numbers have hardly increased. He found African-American families gathering orphaned children of their former friends and neighbors, thus saving us the necessity of bearing large expenses in caring for them. Even as men and women protected children, owners inflicted a cruel fate on many slave women. To increase the stock of babies for sale, they were bribed and pressured to produce more of them. Tempe Herndon remembered she was prized because I had so many children. She recalled one master who took young slave women and men and put them in a big barn every Sunday and left them there until Monday morning. She believed 60 babies were born in that way. Georgia planter John C. Reed said that some masters thought all day long about the natural increase of slaves. He believed this practice had become the South's leading industry. The American cotton planter advised readers to carefully cultivate this source of great profit to the owner. Rice planter P.C. Weston announced, Women with six children at any one time are allowed all Saturday to themselves. Harriet Jacobs recalled what many girls and young women faced. When she is 14 or 15, her owner or his sons or the overseer, or perhaps all of them being able to bribe her with presents, if these fail to accomplish their purpose, she is whipped or starved into submission to their will. William Kraft wrote, any man with money can buy a beautiful and virtuous girl. He called it a common practice for men of the highest circles of society to be the fathers of children by their slaves, and said, the more pious, beautiful, and virtuous the girls are, the greater the price they bring. When prime field hands cost $1,500, some young women sold for 5000 particularly mixed bloods in New Orleans. Whites also invaded black marriages, and battles followed. Josiah Henson remembered his father with 
his head bloody and his back lacerated, his right ear cut off, because he had beaten the overseer who assaulted his wife. In 1830, in Virginia, a man killed his wife's master because he had kept her locked in a storehouse when she refused him. A Tennessee planter pushed his way into one black marriage bed after another until an irate husband choked the life out of him. In 1859, in Mississippi, Alfred was executed after he killed the overseer who attacked Charlotte, his wife. Women were also ready to risk death for their marriages. Jarmaine Logan recalled his mother armed with all the tiger's blood in her veins and a heavy stick, striking a knife from a planter's hand and then knocking him out. A slave named Clarinda swung a hoe that discouraged her master's interest in her, and Cherry Logue swung a club at a man who made insulting advances. In Virginia, Suki punched her owner, who was trying to rip off her dress and throw her to the floor. Suki managed to push him, seat first, into a pot of boiling soup. He screamed as he ran, but quietly enough, so his wife couldn't hear. Some black women, lured or forced into intimate relationships with whites, used their influence to gain equality and respect. Wives of planters brought suits claiming slave women received the attention, affection, and love they were denied by their husbands. In 1831, in Kentucky, an owner's will was contested by relatives who charged he had been insane. Their proof was he showed an inclination to marry the slave Grace, whom he liberated. Some of the resulting interracial marriages brought freedom and equality. Captain Ralph Quarles of Virginia married slave Lucy Langston, then freed her and their three sons. The young men left Virginia for Ohio, one saying, He did for his sons all he could in wisdom, in education, and in his will. Poet Langston Hughes was born from this family. Lewis Clark's sister refused to become the mistress of a man named Koval unless he freed her, and in about a month he took her to Mexico, emancipated, and married her. She and Mr. Koval visited France for a year or more, and then the West Indies, and she inherited his fortune. But most women forced into interracial relationships were unable to do more than hold their pride. One man said his grandmother was raped, but she carried herself like a queen and was tall and stately. Louisa Piquette, trapped in a relationship, had trouble with my soul the whole time, but could only pray for her master's death. When her prayers were answered, she didn't cry nor nothing, for I was glad he was dead. I was left free and so glad. Women field workers found some comfort by singing a song of lament and warning. Rains come wet me, sun come dry me. Stay back, boss man, don't come nigh me. The exploitation of women and their separation from their men left a bitterness that many could never forget. In 1863, 
a black couple who had been forced apart, and each of whom had remarried, met in Virginia. The woman felt it was like a stroke of death to me. We threw ourselves into each other's arms and cried. White folks got a heap to answer for the way they've done to colored folks. As white fathers and sons sought out black women, their wives hid from the truth. Mistress Mary Chestnut wrote in her diary how our men live in one house with their wives and their concubines, and the mulattoes one sees in every family partly resemble the white children. Any lady is ready to tell you who is the father of all the mulatto children in everybody's household but her own. Those, she seems to think, drop from the clouds. Despite repeated assaults, black families tried to reunite. A runaway who fled to Canada in 1853 told his tale of family unity. My wife got a voucher for her freedom before she would come on. I was in slavery until I was about 18 years old. There were my four uncles, myself and mother, and another sister of my uncles. My uncles paid $1,500 apiece for themselves. They bought themselves three times. They got cheated out of their freedom in the first instance and were put in jail at one time and were going to be sold down south right away. But parties who were well acquainted with us and knew we had made desperate struggles for freedom, came forward and advanced the money and took us out of jail and put us on a footing so that we could go ahead and earn money to pay the debt. My uncles bought me, my mother, as well as themselves. How married love survives separations has been unearthed in recently discovered slave letters. In December 1862, Norfleet, a Texas servant taken with his master into the Confederate Army, heard from his wife, Fanny. I haven't forgotten you, nor will I ever forget you as long as the world stands, even if you forget me. My love is as great as it was the first night I married you, and hope it will be so with you. My heart and love is pinned on your breast, and I hope yours is to mine. There is no time, night or day, but what I am studying about you. Your loving wife, Fanny. In the slave's struggle for knowledge, women less carefully watched than men often played a leading role. Whites used to spell out words so blacks couldn't understand what was going on, recalled one woman. But I ran to uncle and spelled them over to him, and he told me what they meant. Southern laws imposed harsh penalties for anyone teaching slaves to read or write. Margaret Douglas, a white woman of Norfolk, Virginia, was tried and found guilty, according to the court, of one of the vilest crimes that ever disgraced society. She had taught Kate, a slave girl, to read the Bible. No enlightened society can exist where such offenses go unpunished, ruled the court. During an era when education was a privilege for white men, not women, the African-American community could afford no such distinctions. Some black women daringly conducted secret schools. In Natchez, Louisiana, Miller Granson, who learned to read from the children of her Kentucky master, 
ran a midnight school of 12 pupils each term that taught reading and writing between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. She graduated hundreds. Some pupils soon applied their knowledge by writing passes for runaways fleeing to Canada. Susie King and her younger brother attended an illegal school in Savannah taught by a free black woman, Mrs. Woodhouse. King described the process. We went every day about nine o'clock with our books wrapped in paper to prevent the police or white persons from seeing them. We went in, one at a time, through the gate, into the yard to the kitchen, which was the schoolroom. She had 25 or 30 children, whom she taught, assisted by her daughter, Mary Jane. The neighbors would see us going in sometimes, but they supposed we were there learning trades, as it was the custom to give children a trade of some kind. After school, we left the same way we entered, one by one, when we would go to a square about a block from the school and wait for each other. Frederick Douglass first learned to read from his mistress until her husband found out and exploded, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would become unmanageable and of no value to his master. Douglas had learned more than reading and writing. He understood, as had many black men and women, that on this control of knowledge rested the white man's power to enslave the black man. Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 